Dads, I want to say thank you for all that you do during the year. You're the, um, you're the steady anchor that holds us in place. You can probably look back and remember some words of wisdom you received from your dad. My father passed away 40 years ago, and I can still hear his voice and the advice he would give me and the things that he would say. Things like, and I love these, don't ask me, go ask your mother. That was the answer for many, many things. Close the door. Were you raised in a barn? I made the mistake one time of saying, Jesus was born in a barn. He never let me forget that. My dad would say things when we'd get out playing and get hurt. He'd say, don't worry, it's only blood. He'd say, a little dirt will never hurt you. Keep your eye on the ball. That was my favorite one. The thing that always concerned me was when he would take us into the bathroom, shut the door, and he'd say, this is going to hurt you, me more than it hurts you. That never happened. Do you think I'm made of money? I think every dad says that. And the one that I heard so many times, I would see his right eye in the rearview mirror, and he would say this, don't make me have to stop this car. I know you recognize all of these because that's what dads are about. They keep us steady. They keep us focused. And we try as fathers to stay in the step that our father was in, but we never quite measure up to what our dad did. But I believe that fathers are so significant in the world today because we keep the heartbeat of the family going forward. We establish the rules and maintain them in our own life. And, and our children are watching us even when their eyes aren't looking at us. A little boy and his father were talking one day, and, and, and the boy asked, do, do fathers always know more than their sons? And the dad said, of course they do. That's always true. And, and the son backed up, and he said, Dad, who, in, who invented the telephone? And he said, Alexander Graham Bell. And he said, well, then why didn't his dad do it if he knew more than he did? Well, that, that ended in a bad situation also. But the reality is our, our dads do know a lot, and they love us. And they care about us. And I look out at some of the dads in the room today, and I am inspired by, by you. I'm inspired by your families. And I know families are busy. Kids grow up and they move away. And sometimes they can't be back together with their families, especially on Father's Day. But I'm inspired by what you've done and you keep doing. Keep it up. You're the blessing. You're the stability. And you're the hope of America. This morning we're going to look at the, uh, the concept and the idea that we're not alone. So often in the world we think that we're by ourselves as Christians. We think no one else is there. We have to face these obstacles over and over again. But remember this, that Jesus gave us the church. We have one another in this earthly vessel of life, in this body of Christ called the church that's so significant. I'm not talking about this building talking about the people gathered in the building known as the body of Christ or the church. We have one another. And you've got to remember that we're in a civil war today, not like the civil war 160 years ago. This civil war, to me, is more frightening than anything I've ever seen. It's a war for the heart, souls, and the minds of every single American. It's literally a fight between evil and good. 
We've just recognized or realized that, that we've surrendered over our educational system to people that don't understand God, nor do they want to recognize God. And we understand that we have obstacles that we have to overcome for our children to embrace and continue to hold on to their faith in Christ. There are those out there that believe that God is a myth. When you mention God in, in any environment of education, some people get very, very angry. I made the mistake one time at, at, at a Baptist university that I was attending, Mercer University, of looking at a professor who said he was an atheist, and he told the class this. He said, I don't believe in God, and I think it's a crazy thing, and he got louder and louder, and finally I just said, I don't want to get upset with you, Dr. Mancini, but I said, why are you getting so upset if there isn't a God? Why don't you just go on with your life? That didn't go well either. The reality is they know there's a God. They, they realize that. What they don't like is the fact that he demands something of them, and they, they in rebellion refuse. Always remember that. There's an open rebellion against God, and you're a target if you're a follower of Christ. But I want to encourage you today, you're not alone. The body of Christ is so significant. Now, where's God's people in all of this, and how do we deal with this? There are several things that we as the body of Christ need to be aware of when we face this obstacle. Because it's easy for us to get caught up in the anger and the angst of what's going on with the rebellion against God. Many of us in this room were born into an America where we would pledge allegiance to the flag, we would pray in our classroom, and everybody believed pretty much like we believed about God. But suddenly, that America is gone. And we have pluralism times ten, and all sorts of ideas. And people are getting offended by our faith, yet we want to tell them that the only reason that America is a united country that's free and peaceful is because of our faith. I remind you that the young men and women that fought in World War I and World War II, and certainly in Korea and Vietnam, were people who fought because they believed in the Christian ideal of freedom. They didn't just fight because they wanted to fight. Many were terrified of war. But they wanted their children and their children's children to have an opportunity to grow up in a country such as the one they had enjoyed. And they realized that that required sacrifice. Now what do we do today? Let me go over three things that I think are so important for us to understand as we face the conditions that we face in the world and understand that we're not alone. The body of Christ does this work together. The first thing I want you to realize is this. God called us to change the world, not to complain about it. So many times when I sit down with a group of friends, the conversation always seems to delineate over to complaining about the world. Doctors are wonderful, but if all they can do is diagnose your illness and they refuse to treat it, you're dead. And all of us can diagnose the problem in America today. We've gone away from the traditions and the values that made America great. We've walked away from God. We've left His law. We've forgotten about that we have an opportunity, not an obligation, we have an opportunity to spread the gospel. And that should move us more than anything else. Remember this, God was compelled 
to send his son to die for us because he loved us. And we should be like him and we should love those who are broken and wounded and hurt. God called us to change the world, not to complain about it. We are all, as they used to say in court, indicted co-conspirators. Because we're all lost. At one time, everybody in this room that's a Christian was lost. And hopelessly away from God. And you had to be sought out by the Holy Spirit. And God had to send the, the right people there to you to give you the gospel in a way that the Spirit could reveal it to you. Whether you were 9 or 69, He sent them there for you to learn that. And to realize you were a sinner and you could be saved. We also realize this, that as Christians, the fight that we have is not with flesh and blood. It's a spiritual fight. As Ephesians 6.12 says, For we struggle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces that are wicked in heavenly places. We forget about that, that there, there's evil out there that wants to attack us. You might get mad that when you get distracted in the morning driving to work and you get pulled over and get a ticket. That is not evil forces coming after you. Not at all. Satan is up before we are plotting and planning to ruin our day and our week and our life. And we have to be prepared. Now, it's very simple to be prepared. What you do is you make sure that you put on the whole armor of God. We talked about that several weeks ago. The whole armor of God requires you to be in God's Word, to read it, to read it as a love letter to you, and then to go back and to speak plainly and honestly to God. That's called prayer. And then be still and listen to Him. That's called guidance. And when we are willing to prepare our day with that, God has a way of navigating us through the perilous situations of the day that Satan would seek to destroy us in. So how do we fight in this battle? Where do we get our tools? How do we accomplish this as the army of God? How do we go after these situations? Our, our passage today deals with Jesus' first mention of the church and the Gospels. It's also the statement that Simon Peter made, which was wonderful. But then the next part of that sentence is mischaracterized when you read it in the English and don't read it in the original Greek. It can be deceitful. It can sound as if God is building His spiritual church, His mighty fortress that would protect us. He's building it on the shoulders of a man, a man who was very frail and very fragile. In fact, this passage here reveals probably the only good thing that Simon Peter ever said that you can, can announce. Most of what he said was just absolutely disparaging and totally off the mark. But Jesus was announcing that his church would not be built on men, but we would be built on him. And that should give us hope. Secondly, God called the Christian to not go it alone. We don't go out to fight a battle by ourselves. We're together. We pray for one another. We lift up one another. 
We've got a precious church member that grew up in this church, and even though she lives far away from here, this church is always on her heart and her mind. She's watching our broadcast right now. She does every Sunday, and I hear from her. She had a crisis in her life last week, and and immediately upon letting me know, I jumped into action, and we started praying, didn't we? And God got her through that. The body of Christ is bigger than one person. It's greater than one person. It expands, and it touches the lives of many, and we never walk away from anyone. That is so important. Can you be a Christian without the church? Yes, it's possible. But it's something like being a student without a school or a soldier without an army or a citizen who doesn't pay taxes or vote or a sailor without a ship. It's like being a parent without a family, a football player without a team. Figure that one out. A bee without a hive. You're helpless and you're vulnerable when you don't have the church. When I encourage people to come back to church, I don't encourage them because of the fact that we just need a full room. No, we don't. I've preached in here with with nine people before me. Did that a number of Sundays during the beginning of, of the pandemic. But the reality is we need each other. We need each other for support and encouragement. We need to pray for each other and lift one another up. We need to remember that we're not just a singular force out there. We're a part of a body. And in a human body, every, every part of the body needs to function correctly for the body to survive and to excel at what it's called to do. And in the same way, we have to be a part of that body. If you miss church more than two Sundays and you don't really miss it, you need to go back and check your relationship with God because there should be something that's precious and should be prioritized in your life because you're here. God wants us to understand that. God instituted the church for a purpose. It is the church through which the fight is taken to the enemy. Now let me explain what I mean by that. It is the church and the Christians in it that are organized to accomplish the mission. And the mission is simply this. It's not a mission of war and destruction. It's, it's a mission of gathering together. Matthew 28 gives us a powerful statement in the last verses there, 18, 19, and 20. Jesus speaks before his disciples and followers, before he leaves this world and ascends back into heaven. This was some time after he had died and rose again and came back to earth. And he said these words. He said, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. He was establishing his credentials. He's saying, I'm not going out on a limb. All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. And on the basis of that, you go out and make disciples. In fact, actually what it says in the Greek is, as you are going, make disciples. That is such a powerful statement to us. That is our calling. That's our battle. It's not that we stand before Satan and argue and fuss with him. It's not that we go before demons and and struggle with them. No, Satan is a defeated foe. He knows that. He's wounded. Death is on his head, and he knows that his time is short. 
He cannot take away your Christianity, but He can make you live as if you were never saved. He cannot destroy your hope of a home in heaven, but He can make you live as if you are destined for damnation. That's why you cannot allow Satan to have a foothold in your life. Don't listen to his words. Don't listen to his discouragement. Don't let him plant in your mind a doubt about God. Because he loves to do that. It's how he started out, I remind you. In Genesis, when he confronted Eve, as she was standing there looking at the tree, the tree that that God had said, leave alone. And like any good child, if you say, look, that pie is cooling in the window. Don't you dare touch it. What are that, what's that child going to do? Going to sit there and think and think and just want to touch it. That's just the way it is. You know, my daughter, Lauren, has been with me for a couple of months, and she reminded me. She said, Daddy, do you remember the time that you burned my finger? And I said, no, I don't. What did I do? We lived in a hundred-year-old house in the church that I was pastoring in downtown Atlanta when Lauren was born. And that house did not have central heating and air. In fact, part of the house, we lived in the coach house, and the house in front of us that was a part of the church was where the movie Driving Miss Daisy was filmed. But in that house, we had space heaters, gas heaters on the wall in each room. And here I've got this precious little curly-headed girl with, with these wonderful, beautiful eyes that just had to touch everything. And so one day, and she reminded me of this, I took her up there and I was afraid that she'd walk out of the room and would touch it. I took her up there and on the side of the heater where it was warm but not too hot, I took her finger I said, touch that like, like I did. And she did and she jumped back. She, she said, it's hot. I said, yes, and it's hotter in the middle. Be careful, be careful. She said, Daddy, I never forgot that. 30 years later, she still remembers it. We have to understand that there are things out there that will hurt us. And we have to protect one another. There are games in life that we don't need to play. Because they're vicious and consuming. And when we're involved in that, it's getting involved in us. One of the hardest things for a human to do is to forget. Now I know, I'm 63 now, I forget stuff all the time. I've got three different sets of keys that go three different places and and if I don't leave the house with all three of them I'm in trouble and most of the time I make at least one trip back in the house from the car because I'm missing my keys so I know about that kind of forgetting but the reality is we need to learn to forget some things in our life we need to forget our sins God has he said your sins are remembered no more Sometimes our problem is we won't forgive ourselves because Satan keeps reminding us of the, 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 the problems we've had and the struggles we've had in life. And we, learn, we need to learn to forget in that way. But on top of that, we've got to remember what God has done for us that's been a blessing that's changed us. So often we forget about that. One of the first verses I memorized outside of John 3.16 was Revelation 12.11. And my mother insisted that I memorize that when I was about five years old. And I remember memorizing, and I would say it all the time, and people would look at me and say, well, what does that mean? I couldn't explain it, but I can now. Revelation 12.11 says, And they overcame him by the, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimonies, and they loved not their lives unto the death. 
Now that passage is talking about something that will happen after the rapture of the church to those who follow Christ in this life, those chosen who who choose to go after him and who will have to face the evil one, the unholy trinity, Satan himself and his dragon and, and the antichrist. They'll all be there. But those people at that time will look at Christ and know who and what he is and they will overcome that supernatural evil by the blood of the Lamb and by the testimonies of those who follow Him. And it says that it will be so strong to them that they won't even love their own lives. They'll say, I'm ready to die. I'm ready to be with God. I will do whatever it takes. Now, here's the good news. If you're a Christian, you'll never see that time. You'll be up in in heaven and you'll have the best seat, a box seat, to observe all of that. But the reality is, we've got to have that kind of devotion to Christ even today. But lastly, I want you to think about this. God established His church on Jesus, not dependent upon mankind. I've grown up hearing people say things like, oh, my uncle so-and-so or my granddaddy, they were pillars of the church. They couldn't open without them. They were there every time the door opened, the door closed. And that's a good thing. But... The church is not built on men and women and children. It's built on Christ. Christ alone. The passage we're looking at here occurs when when Jesus takes the disciples to a strange place, Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was a, a Roman settlement. There were very few, if any, followers of Christ there. There were certainly no Jews there. It was a pagan stronghold. Perhaps Jesus went there to escape the crowds, I don't know, to spend time with his disciples. But as he is there, they're going up to the base of Mount Hermon. And there at the base of Mount Hermon is is the Golan Heights. Dr. Chittam, you remember when we were there. I'll never forget going up there. And we actually walked around the foxholes that were dug there in the Golan Heights during the early war there that Israel had. In that region is literally the headwaters of the Jordan River. But right where the springs begin, there's a place just behind there. It's a deep cavern. Very deep. And and it, it has always been called the same thing. The gates of hell. It's a place where the pagans, Roman god Pan was worshipped. The half man, half goat god. It was a place that was was purely evil to the Christians. They they believed that everything there was evil, and anything descending into that pit was from hell. It was upon that backdrop that Jesus stood there when Peter made his confession, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says something that is so powerful there, and sometimes people miss In the original language, he looks at Peter and he said, you're correct, and you're Petros. Now, Petros was a funny little word. Petros meant pebble. Y'all remember remember, uh, the Flintstones? Remember their daughter, Pebbles? Pebble. He looked and he said, you... Peter's name, which was Cephas in, 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 in the Aramaic, but his name meant pebble. He said, you were, you were pebble, but upon Petra, the great rock, I will build my church. 
that was so outstanding and so significant and so important, but some people miss that. Some people rearrange the thoughts about that and they said, oh, Simon Peter was the first pope. He's, he's the one that founded the church. God help us if Simon Peter founded the church. He was the most flawed of all the disciples. He's the one that, even though, even though one of the disciples sold him out, Judas sold him out and then took his own life, Simon Peter bragged about his boldness and his commitment. He said, everybody else will leave, but I won't. He was the first one to leave. He cursed Jesus' name when they pointed him out. He was not the strength upon which you build a church. And he knew that. His boldness that came later on that we read about in the book of Acts was supernatural because he had learned a lesson in such a powerful way. And it was Jesus on the beach who recommissioned him and set him out to serve again. Deuteronomy 32.4 says, The rock, speaking of God, His work is perfect, for all His ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is He. How true is that? That is why Jesus used such a phrase as that. That's why He said that. He is the rock upon which the church is built. If I have a talent of any kind, I don't have many talents, but if I have a talent, it's sculpting. I've been a sculptor most of my life. Uh, I don't do a good job of f freely sculpting from a thought in my head. I can look at somebody and I can sculpt their face, their image, their body. Uh, I've always worked in several different mediums, and one of them's clay. And I enjoy that. You may or may not know that. But, uh, and I haven't got to sculpt in a lot of years, and I want to one day get back to that while I can still do it. But one of the people I love to read about was Augusta Rodin. Rodin was a French Impressionist sculptor. And you might know him best for the sculpture that he, he created called The Thinker. The Thinker was originally meant to, to sit on top of his greatest masterpiece, which was called The Gates of Hell, which was copied after the statement that Jesus made about that place where the headwaters of the Jordan come out. And originally they were together and they were displayed together. Author Neil Cole in his book tells a story about a party that was given to display the two together. And as they were looking at it, one of the, uh, the artsy people in the community that was there with everybody else to drink their wine and observe, she's looking at it and she sits in a chair just in front of it and she says this. She said, you know, I could just stare at the gates of hell forever. There was a most uncomfortable feeling in the room because everyone knew she didn't understand the source of that name. There are a few people that chuckle very uncomfortably. And it, it, it is said that the man who had sponsored the entire display there said this, I hope not. I hope you don't spend eternity looking at the gates of hell. And the sad truth that he told was, this woman was there looking at something and understanding something, but totally missed the point of it. For Rodin wanted to illustrate the reality that when we come before the fact that our lives are not infinite on earth, they're finite. 
We need to pause and we need to think before we reach that point in eternity. Because once we are there, there's no going back. And that's exactly what Rodin meant by that. We're to be people who prepare in our thoughts and in our hearts and in our lives to do what Christ has called us to do. To share truth unvarnished. To love with an unlimited love, yet speak truth so plainly that people will be changed. What are you doing for Father's Day? Where are you going to go? Ask God to give you an opportunity to share your faith because out there somewhere, there's someone that needs to know about Jesus. And they may know cursory information. They may be like that woman there at the display. They may know a little bit, but they don't understand fully what's going on. Ask God to give you an opportunity to share truth with them. And he never fails to bless us with that. Let us pray. Father, I thank you so much for your holy word and how it changes us. And Now we must be changed as we confront it. For your word in our heart makes us into what we need to be. Now, Lord, speak to someone this morning, someone that's seeking and searching, searching for truth. They want to come closer to you. They want to experience that life that, that's missing. And, Father, I pray that you would give them a, an earnest desire today to come forward and embrace that truth and be changed. Lord, speak to someone even now, someone that needs prayer, that we can lift them up and give them hope and help. Father, speak as only you can do, for you, our Heavenly Father, cares for us and wants to change our destiny. And Lord, we pray this in your holy name. Amen.